welcome to episode 34 of the WASB Connection Podcast. If you've ever struggled to navigate disagreement or conflict in a professional setting, including a school board, Sarita Maben may be able to help. She's an author and expert on communications and the Thursday keynote speaker at the 2023 Wisconsin State Education Convention. We'll talk to her today about how to work better together. That's a big topic, but Sarita can break it down into concrete tips that can make a difference in your professional life. I actually share my top 10 positive communication phrases in my keynotes, which I'll be sharing, of course, with the group in January. And a lot of the phrases revolve around seeking input and taking responsibility for what we think. So that would be the difference between saying, help me understand or I need your help versus, again, uh, you need to you better. For example, you may struggle with wanting to say yes to requests for help. We're all busy, but Sarita will talk about how to say yes without being overburdened. We'll also talk about how to receive negative feedback in a graceful way and how to give it without damaging the relationship. So we're talking to Sarita Mabin, a communications expert, author, and international speaker, and of course, a keynote speaker at the 2023 State Education Convention. Welcome to the podcast, Sarita. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start out by talking a bit about your background. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? I know you have an interesting and a little unusual story. Yes. Well, I grew up as a military brat. My dad was in the Army for 26 years. So we moved every couple of years. And one of the hardest questions to answer is when someone says, where are you from? And I say no, nowhere and everywhere. That sounds flippant, but indeed, uh, we, we moved every two to three years and spent some time overseas, graduated from high school in an American high school overseas in Germany, spent a number of years over there. So that was kind of how things began with exposure to all different places. And I think it served me well. Right. And I understand that you are the oldest of four. Is that right? So that, of course, leads to uh, certain uh, communication skills, as we might say. Yes, yes. And of course, my my two younger sisters and my younger brother reminded me regularly, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) And of course, uh, I I always laugh and, and make jokes about that because I think in the real world of work, so much of our communication is about getting cooperation from people that we aren't the boss of. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might be, you know, your fellow board members, it might be colleagues, or it might even be your family members. And so how do you do that uh, constructively is the, is the challenge. Right. And board members, of course, feel that every meeting because as individuals, they don't have much authority, but as a group, they have plenty. So getting folks mm-hmm. uh, to come on board is really essential. Yes, yes. So tell me a little bit about your professional background. I understand you worked in higher ed? Yes, I did. And interestingly, to back up even further, I'll tell a quick story that I don't normally share. And that is uh, when I was in high school, I was on the school newspaper, co-editor, and was intending to go into journalism. Hmm. And then uh, somewhere along the way, it was decided that there should be an advice column. Um, you know, because every self-respecting newspaper has an advice (laughs) column. You might remember Dear Anne, Dear Abby. And so somewhere along the way, I became the advice columnist and my identity was secret and people would leave their questions and and comments and problems in a little box in one of the school hallways. And I would, in the middle of the night, sneak them out and respond to some and we'd publish them. Well, anyway, all of that led to me being intrigued by psychology and what makes people think, what makes people tick. And so when I came back 
back to the States, I went to college at the University of Maryland as a psychology major and abandoned the idea of being a journalism major. And of course, as a psychology major, what are you going to do with that? Somewhere along the way, I started working on campus as a university orientation leader, working with some of the student leadership programs, and discovered that there was this whole field of university administration. And that is what led me to get my master's in counseling, which of course, where I specialized in college administration or better known as college student personnel. And uh, so that was the journey to discovering that my intrigue was really more about what makes people tick and what makes people work together. And then of course, I had a 13 year career in university administration at four state universities and got to use all those cool skills working in the university arena. And of course, unfortunately for you, you became an expert in interpersonal communication and conflict, and there's none of that these days, so no one uh, <laughs> has any use for your your advice. But seriously, how did you start to really focus in on interpersonal communication and on managing conflict? How did that become an area of expertise for you? Well, you know, I'm sure your listeners working in the education arena know quite well that education is uh, there's no escape from conflict and of course there's always going to be some disagreement and working in the university arena I discovered that there were many opportunities to try to work together better resolve issues so that was kind of how i became intrigued initially and even taught some classes on communication and student leadership and was fascinated by that. But what I discovered along the way was my real calling was public speaking. And I was doing a lot of that in the, as part of my university job, training staff, teaching classes, even on the outside of the campus, I was often called to speak at different events and discovered that that was really my actual calling. And people would say that every time I'd speak on behalf of the campus and someone would come up to me and they'd say in a hushed tone, you know, you missed your calling, don't you? <laughs> the speaking is what you should be doing. And that led me to ultimately make a career change. And I started as a contract trainer with one of those seminar companies and did that for five years. And then there was a big shakeup with the, the company I was with. And they offered a very unappealing contract after being bought out by a competitor. And that led me to go out on my own. And that's that was 1999. So I can't believe it's been 23 years now that I've been out uh, on my own as a speaker running my own speaking business. And I know that your books and keynotes offer some practical advice. So I want to jump in to some of the issues that working folks and people in education see all the time. And, and one of them is is saying no and setting boundaries. And it's tough for folks. You know, you want to say yes, you want to be helpful, but sometimes that's not a great response. So what's your advice for how to say no uh, in a guilt-free way? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I spent a lot of time during my speaking career talking about how to say no nicely. And one of the things that I always say is don't make excuses because that will always come back to bite you. Hmm. Um, you know, if you say, oh, it's a busy season right now, I can't help you with that project. You know, next month they'll be back. Is it better now? Is the timing better? You, you, will, you will ultimately be backed into a corner with an excuse. And so I've over the years started sharing three ways to say no nicely, which none of which involve excuses. Number one is compliment plus no, which would sound like, oh, thank you for thinking of me. Unfortunately, I'll, I'll have to pass on that. But, but people don't realize that when you say, oh, thank you for considering me or I appreciate the offer, that is a way of saying, 
saying thank you and complimenting. That's really a compliment. And the second one, of course, is my favorite counselor term, empathy plus no, which is I know you're really swamped and you need someone on that committee. Unfortunately, I'm not available. Hmm. Without excuse making, just you know, feel their pain, acknowledge. I know it's a busy time. You need help. Unfortunately, I'm not able to do so. And then the last one I always say is choose to say no, which is, you know what? I've chosen not to run again this year for that office. So I've chosen not to be part of that committee this fall. So when you say I've chosen to, or I, I'm choosing to opt out, I would say, oh, I've, I've chosen to opt out. You know, who can argue with that? Right. So that's what I spend a lot of time talking about over the years is how to say no nicely uh, with the compliment, empathy, and choosing. But what I've been reminded of so many times, people will say, well, Sarita, you know, it's in my best interest, especially with my boss or with certain colleagues. It's in my interest to say yes. And how do I do that without running myself ragged? And so I've kind of moved away from the no to guilt-free yes, so that you don't find yourself later saying, oh, why did I agree to that? What was I thinking when I said yes? So I always share three words, phrases, if, when, and as soon as, and I call those boundary-setting phrases. You know, if you're willing to wait till tomorrow, I can give this my full attention. Or when I'm done with this project, I'd be happy to start on yours. Or as soon as we get the information gathered, we can move forward. So if, when, and as soon as are three phrases that I use a lot, and I'm sure I'll be talking about this a bit in my keynote for for the conference coming up in January. I'm a fan of the guilt-free yes these days. And guilt-free in this context, meaning, of course, feeling that you aren't adding to your stress or adding to your burden if you're just putting it off just a little bit and making it contingent on and getting something from them or in waiting a few days or a week or something. Exactly. Because a lot of times we feel guilty, we feel bad, we feel regret, we kick ourselves <laughs> when we say yes. And so the goal is to say yes without feeling bad or kicking ourselves later, You know, putting some boundaries and parameters around that yes. And of course, you talk a lot about feedback. And as a speaker yourself, I imagine you get a fair amount of it. People probably often don't hesitate to critique what you wear, what you say, how you say it. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that experience, maybe being a big sister, plays in too. Could you talk a little bit about, before we start giving tips, what's your own experience with feedback as a speaker? What's that like for you? Well, you know, in terms of being on the receiving end of feedback, uh, I think we all love feedback when it's good. Sure. (laughs) But the minute someone gives us some negative feedback or criticism of of some sort, we tend to not be so happy about it. And I don't think I know anyone who says, I love, uh, I love criticism. I love negative feedback. I suppose we could put a positive spin on it. And sometimes I try to put a positive spin by asking myself, is this something that I feel like is I've heard before? Is this familiar? Is this something that I think is true or that I agree with? You know, I feel like I do my own internal dialogue when I get the feedback on, is this something I I agree with or not. Right. But I tell you, the best advice I've ever received was from a, one of my first mentors when I was a grad student. Years ago, she says, you know, when you get criticism, ask for more. And it really, it, and I have a whole story. I'm, I'll be sharing this in my keynote, of course, a whole full-blown story, which I could take up the rest of our time together sharing. But, but basically, it boils down to her saying, when you get feedback, ask mm-hmm. for more. And then me later on discovering when I got some bad feedback from one of my university employees, my staff members, I had to actually invoke the ask for more, sure. uh, which is really, and when she said ask for more, she means uh, saying things like, well, tell me more, or can you elaborate, or 
can you give me some examples, rather than trying to explain away uh, or justify. We usually try to justify, well, here's what happened, or here's why I did that. So rather than trying to justify or explain, instead to get more input, because we might actually learn, we might learn something along the way. It's hard to do, but I thought that was great advice, though, in terms of asking for more rather than trying to justify. So let's say that you're in the position of needing or wanting to give that negative feedback. What are your tips for doing so without damaging the relationship? If possible. Well, you know, I always say the first thing we should do is give the benefit of the doubt. Assume that the person didn't have negative intentions. And uh, I have a little acronym that I share called AIR, A-I-R, and the A stands for awareness. You know, are they even aware of the fact that there's a problem? Mm. Uh, I'm sure that your listeners probably have had occasions where they're losing sleep over someone doing something and then find out when they talk to the person, the person had no idea that, that there was a problem. Right. So A, the awareness, and then I is the impact, which is, well, why do I even care? You know, what's the reason that I'm wanting to share this feedback? And I always say I have to put my ego out of the way because my ego wants to say, well, if they just do it the way I told them. You know, that's the ego talking. So we have to set that aside and say, okay, are they aware? Let make them aware of the situation. Let them know what's the impact. You know, when you miss the deadline, we look unprofessional. Or, or when we don't get the information done, you know, here's what happens. Uh, we, here, here's the impact of that. And then, of course, the R is request. What do we want them to do differently? What are we requesting? We can't assume that surely they know. Uh, we should go ahead and be specific and request. So AIR is my favorite acronym. I share that a lot. And I think that's a great way to approach the uh, giving of feedback. Sarita, in your book, you write about folks that that you don't supervise, but who nonetheless, you want their cooperation. And that, that of course, describes school boards pretty well. If I'm a board member and I would really like the cooperation of my colleagues. What are your tips to kind of bring them along or to get their approval, if not participation? Yes, that's a great question. And, and I think it really is about what's in it for that person, why they should care, the W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me. And I think we need to explain to them, you know, here's the reason I need this. I need this because then I'll be able to meet your needs for your project. Or if you get this to me by this time, then I can do whatever it is you need me to do. So I think with the school boards, just like most boards, everyone has their own agenda. Everyone has their own preference, their own pet projects, their own requirements. And I think we should tap into those or look to them to see, you know, what is it that they might find useful? Why might they want to help with this project? So I, and I think of it, as I think of an example, I think of when people have their pet projects and they're trying to get cooperation or support, uh, sometimes we have to say, you know, I'd be happy to help you with that project so that we can work together on future projects or so that mm -hmm. we can build a foundation for the, the next phase of what we need to do. So I think we can use phrases like so that and because to get people's requests and also use that as a way to collaborate better. Of course, more of us are working together online and sometimes we have difficult conversations online. So what's your advice for somebody who's at the keyboard and has that email open, but just can't find the right words. You know, my first reaction is, you know, pick up the phone and have a conversation because so much can go awry in an email. But I do think if we are going to do an email, I always say that we should do a, what I call a kindness check. And for me, the kindness check is a reminder that please and thank you are still the magic words. So look at your email and, and see, is there a please or thank you in the email? And it's a great way to soften an email. So often we, we meet someone after we've been emailing for months and they're really shocked at how friendly and personable we are. <laughs> 
And, you know, it's like you're thinking, well, what were they thinking all this time? Because email can come across as cold and uncaring. And so I say we should do the kindness check. And so instead of saying, I need you to do this by such and such deadline, and to say, I need you to please do this by such and such deadline, thank you so much for your cooperation. So the please and thank you, I feel like we should be sure to use at least one of those in our emails if we have to send a request or give feedback via email. But I also share a story, I'll probably share this story uh, when I talk uh, at the conference about a colleague who cursed out her boss. In fact, this is my opening story in my new book, Say What You Mean in a Nice Way. I opened with the story of a colleague who typed an email to curse out her boss. Of course, thankfully deleted the email, but not before she showed me the email. Uh-huh. And then she recreated the email in a positive way. And I love the fact that she took out the inflammatory words like some of the words that we tend to use when we're a little upset uh-huh. so some of the words he used in that first one were things like you know incompetent stupid uninformed toxic all the things she really wanted to say but instead she replaced that with words like help consider appreciate acknowledge and so it's instead of saying you know you create a toxic workplace and you need to stop it to say you know we would appreciate your hearing us out and uh, acknowledging the the work that we're doing and hope you understand our concerns so so it's, it's always a way to switch a negative yeah. to a more positive. And I'm a fan of using some what I call can-do words, like certainly, yes, absolutely. Those are kind of positive, encouraging words. And those are more important in email than ever because we don't have the benefit of all the nonverbals. I always say uh, that there's three occasions when we should not email. And one of those occasions is when there's a volley back and forth of misunderstanding. And then number two, which is related, is when there's conflict. And then, of course, three, when there's some sort of sensitive information involved. And so I think if we find ourselves, if we find someone else or ourselves having to say, as we discussed before, that might be the signal I use the rule of three personally. Mm-hmm. When I have to go back and forth, back and forth three times, then I say, okay, you know what? I need to pick up the phone and have a conversation. So I think when we find ourselves reiterating and saying, as we said before, as we've discussed in the past, that's a good signal or a clue that maybe we should say, you know, we've talked about this before. Why don't we set up a time to talk uh, rather than going back and forth via email? Because sometimes I've seen people go back and forth, you know, five, ten times, and it only gets worse with each reiteration. (laughs) It just gets worse. (laughs) And then some other random person in the thread gets takes it out of context, and then it starts a big brouhaha. So I I feel like if we find ourselves, you know, if we use the rule of three, Hmm. we've now gone back and forth three times, and there's still confusion or the situation is still happening, they've not changed their behavior, then that might be a signal that we need to schedule a, a phone call. And, and you know, with everybody now being so spread out and, and remote, even before lockdown, we were interacting with people who were not uh, in our particular office. So sometimes the phone call is the next best thing because we can clarify and reiterate and make sure we're on the same page. Some folks are saying that young people today really hesitate or are anxious about that phone call or talking to someone on the phone or making a phone call and really much prefer that digital communication. Have you seen that? And sometimes these are just stereotypes that, of course, we apply to the next generation. Well, you know, actually, I have to interrupt you and say I have a 30-year-old daughter uh-huh. who is, of course, at, at 30, she's the an old millennial. She is uh, very much a fan, and so are her, so are her friends, uh, a fan of texting. Right. And I find myself with her saying, hey, let's 
schedule a time to chat and make it sound light and friendly, not like, oh, we have to talk. <laughs> um, right. But because then she'd be wondering, uh oh, what's going on? So I'll say, you know what, let's let's schedule it. I, I refer it to I refer to it as a catch up call. And the funny thing is, I actually do this same thing with a couple colleagues who are on my team who help market me and help me with my speaking business. We email a lot, but I'll say, hey, you know, we're overdue for a catch up call. Let's schedule a catch-up call, and then we'll schedule a specific time. And actually, that really became a thing during, for me, more so than ever during the lockdown when we were all remote, and I would be very intentional about scheduling regular times every week or every two weeks to talk to people professionally and personally. But I, I do think uh, my daughter is the perfect case study at 30 because she uh, would much rather just text forever and never talk. So, but it's not. So I, uh, I do find myself saying, let's schedule a catch up call. That's my light and breezy way of having a time to just hash out some things that we might need to hash out in a phone call. I think one of the other things that's interesting though, is we do make the assumption that it's the millennials or the younger generation that likes to text. And then we may assume, oh, they're a baby boomer. They probably want a phone call. Sure. I think one of the things, especially when you're talking about working on boards and working with people on a regular basis, one of the cool things is to actually ask people, what's your preferred way of communicating? Sure. And I think it's interesting that I have a colleague who works for a high-tech company, and she says that on their profile, on the company profile, people have rank-ordered their preferred way of being communicated with. That makes sense. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. And she said, so, for example, on hers, she has, number one, email. Number two, they have an inner office uh, communication platform. That would be her number two. And then number three would be a phone call. Huh. So that's her preference, and everybody's is different. So even if we don't have an infrastructure like that, we can say to people when we're going to be working on this project, hey, you know, what's your preferred way of communicating since we're going to be on this project the next few months or whatever? Sarita, we all have our communications pet peeves, right? For me, maybe it's saying that you need something when you want something or saying that, that you feel something when you think something, right? Because a feeling is so hard to discount, whereas a thought is, is easy. That's why people sometimes say, well, I feel as if you should do that when they mean I think you should do that. So we all have our own pet peeves, but is that something you think about? Or what are some of the words that, that strike you that we use that maybe we shouldn't? You know, it's so funny because that takes us full circle back to the bossy big sister uh -huh. commentary because one of the things I found at growing up as the bossy big sister, which kind of spilled over into my work life, <laughs> is the you need to do this or mm. you should do this or you better or you oughta. I call that bossy big sister language and I always propose that we get rid of it. Uh -huh. So for me, it's not about a I want or I think or I feel or I, or I want or I need. It's more about the difference of between saying, you need to do this versus I need your help on this. Right. Or it's the difference between saying you should or you better versus I would appreciate you're doing this. And I actually share my top 10 positive communication phrases in my keynotes, which I'll be sharing, of course, with the group in January. And a lot of the phrases revolve around seeking input and taking responsibility for what we think. So that would be the difference between saying, uh, you know, help me understand or I need your help versus Again, uh, you need to, you better. And so that's a switch, a slight switch from the finger pointing mode to taking responsibility for 
what we want. So that's where my buttons get pushed. Like my buttons get pushed when people start telling me you need to, you should, you better, you oughta. And of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, oh, no, I don't. Right. <laughs> so I think that's the, the distinction. And I find even with emails, we can choose that wording that sounds a little bit more of input seeking versus demanding and dictating. And that story and others, of course, will be in the December issue of Wisconsin School News. So folks can look in their inboxes for that magazine and find an excerpt from your new book, Say What You Mean in a Nice Way. Yes, that's going to be chapter five. You're not the boss of me. How to pull rank when you have no rank to pull. <laughs> Probably speaks to a lot of people in our membership a lot of the time. That's right. And even ironically, even when we have an official title like supervisor, director, chairperson, coordinator, whatever, we still should be mindful of how we're communicating that we're seeking people's input versus dictating and demanding. Even if we do have the official title and we have some rank and we're in charge, we still can be mindful of requesting and seeking input and not dictating. Is there anything else, Sarita, that I did not ask or that you wanted to bring up? The only thing I would say is that is to go again back to my story about how I ended up in this interest and intrigue about how people, what makes people tick. I find it interesting that uh, for me, I end up coming full circle, having started out thinking I was going to be in journalism mm -hmm. and writing. I thought how perfect that I should end up writing a couple books because it almost was like going full circle back to my writing roots. And so I'm excited that my pandemic project was Say What You Mean in a Nice Way, the book, which actually is the sequel, the long overdue sequel to an earlier book called If You Can't Say Something Nice, What Do You Say? And so I just want to put in a plug for both of those books, which are on Amazon uh, for those who might be interested. And of course, the first book is I narrated the audiobook on Audible and we'll be doing that in probably January for the new book. So, and they're both on Kindle as well. And we'll have a copy of your latest book at the convention bookstore as well. So folks can pick that up there too. Oh, perfect. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I appreciate your conversation, Dan. Thank you for having me on the uh, podcast. I appreciate it greatly. Looking forward to seeing people in person in January. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Sarita on our convention website, wasb.org slash convention. You can also find an excerpt of her book in the December issue of Wisconsin School News. Next month, we'll talk about what the WIAA and Wisconsin coaches are doing to help recruit and retain referees for youth sports. 